Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Hello, Tom, and hello, Tom's Globe and Plant. And the plant. There it is. You said you have a new plant, but you said you're already killing it. Yep. I killed the other one, and then this one's already lost a leaf. I might not have a green thumb in here. (laughs) Hopefully, Stick your thumb up so everybody can see that it's not green. That's that's much better. Hopefully, the networks I build survive better than this. So Yvonne, I see your ribbon game, your tree grained a ribbon. Yeah, actually, it may may not be clear, but those are poinsettias. I've put poinsettias around my tree. Oh my goodness. I have some poinsettias. I'm afraid I'm going to kill them. I'm not sure how easy they are to take care of, but somebody gave me poinsettias and I'm trying to keep them alive. Water, man. So Daniel, (laughs) water, that's it. Okay. But probably too much or too little. I got to be careful of so we're being joined today by Daniel Beveridge, who is sitting in the lobby at VMware, apparently. And there's somebody who is standing there just getting ready to go out the door, and they're forever stuck trying to go out that door. It's a terrible thing. <laughs> Are you ever going to let them go out, Daniel? That's my question. It, it's, it's, a, it's a well-chosen metaphor, Russ, for how hard it is to launch uh, innovation into the market. <laughs> That's that's actually really good. Really good. And today we're talking about innovation, funny enough. So let's talk about that because that's a good place to start is like, uh, how hard is it to launch innovation in the market? Like, what do you do as an innovator um, to think about? Well, let's even back up a little bit. Why are you an expert here? Like, wh- why do you want to talk to this topic? What What is your background that uh, gives you authority? I don't know, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, well, I I've been... Uh in technology for about 30 years and um, taught myself to program as a kid. I was like 11, wanted to make video games. Back, This is back when uh, we had the Apple II Plus and uh, green screens and old school days. And um, I just always enjoyed technology. Uh, you know, when I went to college, I, um, I decided to focus more on liberal arts and humanities and um, did a lot of history, philosophy, comparative religion. Um, I did some work in physics and math as well, but I really wanted to think about, you know, big questions, the meaning of life, all that stuff. So uh, that was fun. And what I didn't realize at the time was actually it was great preparation for doing innovation work because there's a difference between doing really deep technical work and doing innovation work. Uh, in one scenario, you, you need to be a deep subject matter expert and you need to go deep um, on, in a certain area and, you know, you need to really know your craft there. But when it comes to innovation, the, the skill set you need is actually a different one. You need really good critical thinking skills. You need to be able to ask, uh, identify and ask the questions that people aren't uh, considering and that everyone is agreeing on. Um, one of the greatest blockers to innovation is everyone agreeing with the existing approach and not being really willing to question the assumptions. Um, And many breakthroughs are really around just asking the right questions and sort of assessing if the assumptions everyone's agreeing to, whether it's technology or something else, are they still valid in the current context? So you need the ability to ask the questions and you sort of need the courage um, as well, because sometimes it's not met with uh, friendly 
reception. You know, you, you're questioning people's uh, comfort zone. You're sort of saying, hey, I know you've done that for 10 years and we've all agreed, but I think it's maybe not the best way to do it anymore. So some people welcome that, some people don't. I just want to back up for one second there because that's really fascinating that you start there because I just finished my PhD in philosophy yesterday. I defended my oral, my, my oral defense for my dissertation, just finished. Oh, fantastic. And people ask, thanks. People ask me all the time, why are you doing a degree in philosophy? Like, why are you even there? Like, you're a network guy. You've been doing engineering for 30 years. What drove you down the path? Well, I have some personal reasons, but part of the reason is exactly what you just said. And I thought it was really important that you just said that, that um, there's a different skill set around um, innovation and around thinking about things and, and learning how to think very, very hard about topics that, um, you know, people joke about how many angels fit on the head of a pin. Yeah, but the point behind that question was, was trying to understand the nature of angels and having arguments about the nature of angels. And that is not exactly the way we think about it, but you're learning to think. I also think um, you mentioned some prerequisites to innovative thinking. I think those are really important. I think another important one is you have to have some sort of organizational sponsorship to even take those positions. Because if you're, if you're going out on your own and challenging people's thinking and challenging, um, you know, is this really the right way to do this anymore without sponsorship from, from some leader who says, this is what we want to be thinking in this way. I, I've seen efforts like that just turn turn people into outsiders and and accomplish no innovation at all. Have you have you seen um, successes when there's a leadership sponsorship of that sort of uh, approach? Yeah, for sure. You need a certain level of um, moral authority, I guess, to be effective. So when I came to VMware, I've been VMware like ten years now. Um, I've been in an in an innovation role the whole time. I I joined. I was in the uh, end user computing business unit's CTO office. And they had pulled me in because I had done some uh, some innovative work in virtual desktops, some of the first um, large scale deployments in the industry for like 100,000 users at, at a large uh, financial customer. And, the, you know, VMware had not seen some of the design ideas I'd put in place and they really wanted to work with me. Um, I had managed to do that because I had questioned some assumptions about storage and the way that it was utilized in a virtual desktop context. It had just been used for VDI the same way it was being used for server workloads. And that was a mistake in my view, because um, there was at that time, not that many uh, IOPS. These are like input output operations that storage systems were capable of, like a typical filer wasn't serving up a lot of IOPS and VDI was a very demanding uh, workload. And so what I had taken the approach to use memory in the server rather than to, to offload disk. And at that time, memory was expensive and people were saying that you shouldn't use a hypervisor's memory for anything else but critical workload, you know, applications, binaries and so forth. I took a different approach. Was, my approach was that user experience was king and that if we could cache IO in a virtual storage appliance in the hypervisor, we could uh, do a lot um, of reads for, right from the RAM inside a hypervisor server and offload the reads going back to this sort of point of scarcity, this choke point. The other idea was thinking about writes. Now, normally writes are very important in storage systems. You have to protect them until they go all the way down to disk um, because otherwise you can corrupt your file system. So everyone, everyone knows that that's the right way to do it. So I questioned that and said, well, actually, no, because these writes are ephemeral 
in this virtual desktop design, you never go back to the same desktop. We create the virtual machine, you use it, and it's called a stateless design. So when you log out, we destroy it. So you never get the opportunity to go back to a corrupted file system because we'll, you'll never go back to the same virtual desktop. So why are we committing them all the way down to the NetApp or the filer's hard drive? Why don't we commit them in RAM in the get a very low latency commit, then the desktop will be really fast. And so essentially I was thinking about risk um, and optimizing performance and choosing to use more RAM in the server instead of driving IO down to disk. It was just a different way of thinking about the architecture, but it questioned the assumptions of like what you're supposed to do with storage in a virtualization design. Turned out like all the execs loved it. They said, this is a breakout user experience. We're gonna deploy this to 100,000 users. This is the way of the future. But really behind that was a willingness to rethink the um, accepted wisdom about what the way you deal with storage systems, the way you treat rights, and, and, and um, sort of the willingness to choose to use memory in a new way at a time when memory was very expensive. So that gives you a little background, but it comes from a thought process of being willing to question um, the assumptions and thinking comprehensively about a solution. Um, and that's, that's um, one of the things that has set me up well to do architecture work. And back to Russ's point, when it comes to architecture, you know, philosophy is about comparing the architectures of thought. Um, and that is really what you're doing when you're doing philosophy. You're looking at very complex thought systems, how they relate to one another, their, their vulnerabilities, the different sort of points of leverage that they have. Um, and to some extent, when you're dealing with complex technical design, you're also comparing different sets of assumptions and thought patterns with each other. Um, and the breakthroughs come from seeing these opportunities to, to exploit a uh, mathematical advantage that has emerged in one system versus another, just in the way I uh, described now when it came to um, IO latency. The interesting thing to me about the, the, yeah, the process that you described was, uh, yes, questioning the assumptions. You have to fundamentally understand why those assumptions were made and what problem they were trying to solve. I think we talk here a lot about the importance of understanding the history of technology. And you do have to understand why, for example, why were rights so important and why was making sure that that data made it all the way down to the storage system, why did it matter? And what has changed um, in what we're trying to accomplish today that didn't exist or that wasn't the fundamental problem that we were solving back when those assumptions were made. And I think one thing that gets in our way so often, um, and, and validated designs are valuable. When you have a known problem, you're trying to implement a known solution, and you want to be sure that you're implementing it in a way that, that will work over the long haul. But when you're trying to innovate, um, and do something differently, a lot of times those validated designs, I'm using air quotes here, um, aren't always very helpful. Have, have you found that in the process of, of innovating? Absolutely. I mean, validated design is there so that all of the customers don't need to go through the, the complex thought processes that I do as an architect. You, it's, it's a trail that someone else has blazed. It's, it's safe. Just follow this pattern. Um, but when you're doing innovation, you need to have a deep understanding of the causal chains all the way down. So you need to understand why each decision was made and the implications it has further up stack. So that if something changes in that layer of dependencies, you can immediately say, hey, if that's gonna change at level three, then there's this implication at level six further up 
that gives us an opportunity to, to pivot left or go right. So without an understanding of the reasons, the rationales in, in validated design, you're not empowered to know when you can make a modification uh, to that design that can be uh, profoundly beneficial because you're not really aware of why, why every de design decision was made. So one of the principles of innovation is understanding you know, the reasons why. It's not good enough to repeat someone else's pattern. You need to have an, uh, you know, a comprehensive uh, and cohesive intellectual model of what you're dealing with. Then you can sort of run up and down the different tendrils and understand the logical dependencies. Um, so I think, you know, I learned to think this way originally because my dad taught me to play chess when I was young. And um, I don't know, I was probably six or seven and really took to it and kind of became uh, a pretty accomplished little child chess player, at least till I was around uh, 12 or 13, you know, even my chess teachers couldn't beat me. And, and then I pivoted to programming at that point, sort of, I didn't stay with it, but it had already given me a thought pattern that I found to be very useful in terms of thinking steps ahead and having, you know, multiple decisions um, that you can make based on what happens next. But you've got a deep understanding of which way you're going and why. And that gives you a way to think about architecture later on too. It's a mental habit that you're in of not just accepting, like, just do this because other people are doing that, but you got to know what's going to happen several steps out if something changes. And that's really kind of a chess, chess mind um, pattern that I think is, has helped me when I look back at my history and, and giving me uh, a template for uh, innovative thought processes. I think the um, questioning assumptions, though, is not just for somebody who already understands the whole stack. Um, and who already knows all the implications of when you do this at layer three and this happens at layer six. I don't think that you need to wait until you understand that full stack to start questioning assumptions. Um, I, I see I see junior engineers kind of do this a lot. They stay quiet. They don't ask questions because they don't want to look stupid or whatever. But if 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 you would take a different approach and say, I want to be innovative, I want to do something that hasn't been done before. And you start asking these questions. Why is this like this? And even if you have the attitude that I think this is dumb, I think that you can you can learn a lot faster about why the current stack is built like it is. Um, I, I don't think that you should wait to question assumptions until you're at a very senior stage, you know, in, in terms of like a person's uh, professional development. Um, and I think that sometimes we stumble onto things. Um, I think people stumble onto things without having a knowledge of the full stack. I think that can happen, too. Yeah, for sure. So a bunch of a, a bunch of different things right there. Boy, a ton of stuff right there. The first is that um, I'm going to say I agree with you, Tom, but in some senses, it's dangerous to innovate if you don't actually understand the system sometimes. Sometimes we end up with very, very bad right. ideas implemented because somebody didn't understand and there was no controlling overview. Um, I'll give an example that I think of all the time, which is networking in Kubernetes. Please, <laughs> could you not have done a better job just because you didn't understand routing to start with? I'm sorry, whoever is out there who's listening to this, who invented that. But that's just something that I always run into. And I see many other cases in, in routing protocols where people just didn't understand how it works. So they invented something new and it turns out they run into the same problems because they didn't realize why that stuff was there in the first place. And so it's, it's really um, sometimes, you know, you need a control. It's not that you shouldn't ask questions. It's just that or challenge the assumptions. It's just that you need a control to bump against that does know the answers to those questions 
um, that can be challenged. So this is something about the philosophical debate world where you have challengers and you have people who are defending that you force yourself to, uh, to interact in that way. Um, in fact, if you go to a rabbinical school, a yeshiva, the way they teach their students is they place them on opposite sides of a, of an, a desk that looks like an inverted V. And each, each of the two students has a full copy of whatever books are available. And the teacher will come by, the rabbi most of the time, and will come by and say, all right, student A, you argue for, and student B, you argue against. You have two hours. And then two hours later, they'll say, okay, you two reverse. Student A, you now argue against, and student B, you argue for. And that's the way they're taught to argue. And so um, I think that's a very healthy model. Um, another really important thing that you hit there, I'm sorry, Daniel, is that yeah. innovation happens at the seams between things. That's, that's, man, we forget that. You mm -hmm. have to know lots of stuff that's adjacent to what you know to get to innovation a lot of times. So I don't know. Thoughts on that, Daniel? Because that seems to be where you, where you innovated about the memory stuff. Yeah. Um, there's certain principles when I look back at my career and, and that, sort of underlie a lot of the insights I've had. I look for hidden areas of, of mathematical advantage. A lot of people feel that you need to wait till a customer asks you to go do something to build it into a product. But none of my insights that I think are the best have come from, from customers asking for something. I usually am going after an idea um, that I think is sort of an evolutionary inevitability based on there being this sort of mathematical opportunity to get a multiplicative advantage as compared to the current approach. If I can find a way, for example, not to like reduce the uh, compute by, you know, 20%, but to reduce it by 90%, I'm going to go after that. And I don't need to wait for a customer to ask me because I know that if it's possible, someone's going to discover it and it will become normative at, at some point um, in the future. And that may be four years out, but that means I've got a lot of lead time to work on it. So I tend to um, scout for things that um, give an almost unfair advantage in the, in the technical architecture. And then I have the, the sort of viewpoint that technology is sort of like biology in the sense you've got competing organisms and you've got this sort of evolutionary swamp of startups, you know, playing out different experiments, mutating, and generally speaking um, over enough cycles, something that has a profound mathematical or efficiency advantage will generally prevail and become, you know, the next paradigm for the way something is done. Now that doesn't always happen. There's sort of these weird fluky things where good, great ideas go to die and instead of becoming the norm. Um, but on the whole, like, you know, that is what happens. So I look for those opportunities and um, I, innovate against that backdrop a lot of times. And that gives me the ability to do it earlier uh, in some sense. That's really interesting. The, um, the idea that in innovation doesn't have to come from customer driven, like it doesn't have to be a customer request, which is the opposite of what I see in a lot of thinking in a lot of, especially in network vendors. Um, sorry, there's no business case. Nobody's asking for this. Um, you know, as if the only input into the system that ever could be is that some feature, some customer had a feature request. And that's, yeah. yeah. So it's the norm, even at VMware, it's a very product manager um, mindset. Um, and that's typically the way product managers, you know, work to manage the life cycle of products. And, and there's definitely value in listening to customers. Don't get me wrong, but there's this, there's this other type of innovation path you can follow that is driven by 
um, the underlying logic, mathematics, um, and the ability to identify an emerging opportunity. And you're usually early if you're doing that. Um, it's usually several years before customers may realize that's possible, or they may never be in a position to identify that. So, you know, I just want to make the point that some of the big, bold idea innovation, you don't need to wait for customers to ask. You can take this other approach that's based on questioning assumptions, looking for mathematical advantages, and deeply understanding the the way uh, the dependencies and, and elements of the solution. And, and that's where I tend to operate just sort of unconsciously. It took me a while to really understand my own process. Um, and it was interesting once I did, I realized, hey, that, that's not what most of people believe is, is what you do to innovate. Um, so it's an uh, interesting observation. Most of what we call innovation in the marketplace is really just incremental change, right? It's not paradigm shifting innovation with a capital I. The thing about true innovation is that most of the time people don't even know to ask for it. Like it's a thing that they need, a problem that they can't even articulate that they have because they can't imagine that it can be any different. And so there's a there's an imagination and 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 a forethought that's required for for true innovation. You know, you think about um, even you know people would argue about um, the iPhone. Well, this is nothing really new, but when you think about the cultural and the social and the economic shifts that have happened since something like the iPhone was introduced. And those couldn't have even been foreseen at the time, Uber, Lyft, those kinds of services, but that really right. transformed the way that the world works. And I think um, the, the thing is, someone has to see it, but there's a tension that happens before the innovator sees it, and then it makes sense to the marketplace. And that is that period in which ideas either live or they die. And it's controlled sometimes by forces that have nothing to do with how wonderful the innovation is, but where the rest of the world is and whether or not they're ready to receive it. That's right, for sure. So the, the flip side of that is that when you're selling an idea that's derived in that manner into a business unit that tends to operate in this other customer-driven mode, you have an inherent challenge because you come as an innovator, let's say you're in a CTO office function, the business unit sort of looks at you already as, as sort of, yeah, doing your thing in, an, in a vacuum. And then you need to go and convince them you've got this great idea. And they're like, well, have you validated that with customers? Have customers asked for that? And so if you're not able to say yes, and you're like, no, I here, here's the reasons why this is a good idea. Here's the benefits. Um, there's a skepticism you have to overcome. You have to do a lot of selling because you're pre-customer validation, but you've got this strong argument that you can make for why an innovation is gonna be uh, solid and a good idea. So you also need these sort of soft skills, I think, to be successful um, in selling some of those types of innovative ideas into a business unit. Uh, and you know you need to be constantly selling, it never is complete. Um, you get different audiences you need to convince, product managers, technical engineers, architects, you know, um, budget folks. And it's just as hard as coming up with the idea, the process of sort of shepherding it in to a point where you can build prototypes, hand it off, sell people in, in a business unit on investing in it and carry it forward over the first few iterations. So it doesn't like fall over, you know, it's sort of 
can be this multi-year process for sure. And sometimes four or five years. And um, been through it in a few few different cycles now. And I've seen that you have to commit to it as a champion. Um, you have to have a vision for what you're going after. You need to try to build one solid proof point to sort of bootstrap the idea, bootstrap the vision into the business unit. Um, and then once people see the first proof point, it's a lot easier for them to get on board with this broader vision you may have painted. And then you kind of need to make sure that um, you know your your project you know, grows up and matures. You don't just abandon ship and move on to the next thing. Because a lot of times when that happens, the innovator and, and the champion goes away. The people that were left with it, they don't they don't hold the torch, and it it kind of um, can fizzle and not necessarily reach its full potential. So. I've seen this uh, need to to sort of commit to the idea over a longer period, and that can be challenging from a motivation standpoint. You know, what is in a typical company? What is the reward structure for doing that? Well, you're probably going to outlast your manager or managers if it's a four or five year process. There's going to be a lot of turnover and people at every level, and so you've got to you've got to enjoy doing that. You've got to sort of get some satisfaction from the journey as such because. By the time you get to the destination where the full vision is is instantiated, you may, um, you know, people may not remember even how it started. That happened to me once um, on a project I worked on uh, for quite a few years. It was it was a four or five year journey. Eventually, it got its way into a technical talk when it had got into product. I had left that business unit unit and was doing something else at the time, and I happened to see the tech talk come over. And um, what was funny, I was watching it, knowing that I had I'd initiated the core things and had patents on the core um, technology. And then they came to finally at the end of this presentation, which was really gratifying to watch. They came to a acknowledgement slide at the end with and there was like 20 or 30 names on there. And my name was not on there at all because oh. the people that had done the presentation, like they had joined, I don't know, a year earlier. They didn't even know me and I had moved on. So I was just sort of chuckling. I'm like, this is this is uh, this is what can happen if you're committed to an idea over a long period. There's corporate forgetting, there's attrition, there's turnover, and um, so that clearly can't be a motivating factor for you to stay with it, right? It has to be something else. Uh, you have to really enjoy it, and you have to understand the meaningful role that you're playing in in bringing this innovation um, into into the market. Yeah, I think that's actually really important. What your motivation is, because, like you said. There have been many times in my career when I've worked on something and started something, and then two or three years later, it pops out in some other vendor, even, presentation. They've built a product based on some presentation I did at Nanog or even whatever. It doesn't even matter. And you're like, hey, where'd you get that from? You know? And they don't even know. They honestly don't know where it came from. So your motivation has to be just doing good for the community, and it has to be just solving hard problems. Um, yeah. rather than being, you know, um, I want the, whatever it is, I want people to recognize me or whatever, because you're not going to get the recognition 90% of the time. Uh, yeah, that's, I completely agree. It has to be kind of values driven. So yeah, it, for me, it comes from my humanistic sensibilities um, around the relationship of technology and society and human experience. And it, it's, it feels like a privilege to be part of that, especially at the time we're living in. Um, and that does motivate motivate me over the long term to continue to stay with this, you know, this area I've chosen to work in. So yeah, I've been doing I'm doing innovation in a lot of areas. Um, my my patent portfolio is is um, about about twenty three patents have been granted and seventeen more 
on file with with uh, from my time at VMware. And uh, I've been able to take my innovation process and apply it to different areas. So uh, storage, tablet technology, um, hypervisor scheduling, cloud brokering, a uh, number of areas. And one of the patent attorneys told me that he was surprised to see how many diverse areas I had, I had created IP in. He said, we have people with, you know, more patents. He said, not a lot, but he said, I don't recall seeing someone that had it in across so many different business units. Um, and that speaks to, I think that the, the intellectual process that's just can be applied in different, different areas that, that um, one becomes interested in. There's other ways to generate IP. You can just be very deep in one area and you're just going to see things in that area. Um, and there's a lot of great work that comes out of, out of that kind of intellectual discovery mode. But then there's this other approach that is more driven by the, the, the thought process itself that can be in a, a force of illumination and discovery. So I, I wanted to ask you, Daniel, how, how do you get, so say you're at the point where you've had some sort of insight, but you're not sure if it's real yet. And it's still it's the very beginning stages of it. Um, sounds like you've experienced this a lot. How do you, how do you personally get yourself into the headspace to figure out, okay, this is something worth spending my time on? Yeah. So um, when you think about a new idea, I like to identify um, how much pain it's going to solve for customers. Okay. So is there a background of frustration that may be unspoken or unidentified, but you know, it's there. The other thing is, um, is there a degree of leverage that this offers? So a non-incremental approach um, that is being taken here. So it's not going to be like 10% better, but it's, it's fabulously better. Um, that gets me interested. So it's addressing real customer pain. It's a, it's got some sort of, you know, mathematical leverage uh, that can be used and it's achievable. In other words, the path to get it isn't going to be so much rocket science. Like you can, you have a pretty clear beat on how to approach it. Um, so there's a, a manageable amount of technical risk in the endeavor. Uh, and then I, what I like to do is you know, I'll write a white paper or I'll write, I'll write up the idea. We have internal research conference and I'll get some peer input on it just to sort of sniff test. It's usually for me to validate that the, uh, the thing I see, other people can see as well. There's certainly people in my trusted circle that I go to for that type of validation. And then the next stage is to build some kind of prototype or, you know, some kind of proof of viability. You don't need to build the whole thing, but just need to show that it, what you think is possible is indeed possible. Sometimes there's also sort of a messaging proof of concept that I do like, okay, what's the right way to tell the story for this? What's the narrative I need to present to the product managers to, to make them convinced that this is great. And that can be a different, that can be something different than what you originally thought. Like sometimes the idea stays the same, but the way you tell the story around it <clears throat> morphs and you find out that the way to tell the story and get acceptance is actually different than what you initially thought. You emphasize something different, you use different language, you avoid some of the words you thought were awesome and cool because they're just freaking people out. <clears throat> Thinking of a project we're doing right now in the malware space, initially there was a lot of language around worms and um, sort of concepts that were concerning to people. Um, but we found that it was this sort of like taboo that they kept coming up against. And so we changed the language around it completely and suddenly there was like a lot more receptivity to it. The idea was completely the same. So experiments on messaging are very important early stage to figure out how you're going to tell the story. Because <clears throat> what can happen is if you don't have that right, then the first uh, customer validations go sideways. 
you know, they really could have accepted the idea. You just didn't put enough work into the storytelling. And um, that could be an unfortunate way for a good idea to not get the visibility it deserves. So another thing that I think is really important there, or you've kind of alluded to it or gone sideways to it a little bit, is that to not get emotionally involved in your idea. This is something that when I first started publishing, I hit a lot was that people who author and do patents and stuff become emotionally wrapped up in the idea. They don't know how to let it go. So they don't know how to like let other people take ownership because they're not going to run with it. You as the inventor is often, are often not in the right place to drive something in an organization. Somebody else will be. And you've got to learn to let go and say, all right, I'm going to let this go. I'm going to allow someone else to drive it. And I'm going to allow the, 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 the idea to change around right. what needs to be changed in order to get it sold. And I think a lot of times inventors in particular get emotionally wrapped in writers and publishers, people who build content, get emotionally wrapped around that. And they don't know how to say, all right, I'm just going to just go, like set it free. Yeah, I found that that sometimes derives from this fear that this might be their one great idea. And if they let it go, um, they won't get the recognition they deserve. And what if that's their last idea? Um, early in my career, uh, I had to struggle with uh, one of my early ideas too. And someone told me a great piece of advice. They said, you know, this is not going to be your last great idea. Um, so recognize that you're more important than this idea. And you're the, you're the asset, not the idea is, is cool, but you're going to generate new, uh, new and other cool ideas. And yeah, that turned out to be true. Um, that was advice someone gave me, you know, I don't know, 15 years ago now, but it was, it's, um, if you have the confidence in your own intellectual process to, to generate ideas, then you don't need to be so attached to any given idea. You know, you, you send it on its way, you do what you can to shepherd it, but you also pull back enough so that you can continue to be creative and, and work on new things. I think that what you just said, I think bears repeating a hundred times, you are the asset, not the idea. I, I thank you, Daniel. I think that is, that is a, a really important point. Happy to share. Yeah. <clears throat> so do you want to hear one of my strangest innovation stories? It's a little humorous. Sure. I think you're going yeah. yes, go right like to, we've gone deep on philosophy and, uh, and, and values. This is a little more whimsical. So I was, um, I was uh, in the in the process. I had a young young daughter, and I was reading her a lot of uh, um, Dr. Seuss uh, books that you read, like Cat in a Hat. And um, I was just doing that on a regular basis because she loved them, you know. And so I was doing that, and I loved the characters. I liked the um, thing number one and thing number two. So I was sort of in my subconscious, I guess. So I was working on this hard virtual desktop problem that we we're struggling with at VMware, which was how do you project a good virtual desktop experience onto a tablet? And this is when the first iPads had come out. And, and my, my manager sort of had me in the car or over dinner or something and said something that I'd been like feeling for a long time, but hadn't voiced, which is that the experience of running a Windows session remotely on an iPad was horrible. It was, um, we were pretending it was acceptable, but it was herky-jerky. There was this long delay in terms of the remote display protocol getting out. And, you know, Windows was designed for keyboard and mouse. And, you know, whereas we go to a touchscreen device, you've got your big fat finger trying to navigate the, the Windows UI. It was just like an ergonomics nightmare mismatch. 
And when he said that, I was like, ah, oh, I've been thinking that for months. Um, and it kind of released me to work on the problem mentally. Like I knew it was a serious problem. So it was that night I had this dream. Actually, I was staying at this low end hotel and it had like old style screen, like, like not even a flat screen. And I was like, man, this, this stinks. I'm not even going to watch TV. I'm going to go to bed early. So I ended up getting like nine hours sleep. So I got, I got like a good dream time in the morning that I could remember. Normally if I'm sleeping less, I wouldn't have that. So that was sort of like part of the backdrop. I think if I wasn't staying in this super eight hotel with this horrible TV, maybe I, would, maybe I wouldn't have had this experience. So anyway, near the morning, I, come, I have this dream and I see, um, I see the, 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 the cat, the, the cat in the hat, like literally using an iPad with the hairy fingers and everything. And then behind the iPad, I saw two really skinny arms with the white gloves on the end, stretching out for like a mile all the way. And then they were, they were operating a PC keyboard like a mile away. And I knew that my subconscious was telling me something. I knew I had got the solution to something. Um, and so I woke up I thought about it. And like, by the time I hit the shower, I had the idea <clears throat> and I, I turned it into um, a paper within a week. And uh, basically I, I had been, been doing this work on accessibility APIs on another project, which had sort of fizzled, but I had learned something in the process is that windows had these accessibility APIs that could be used to drive the UI or, you know, people that are hearing or hearing or sight impaired and so forth. So I realized that what we could do is make our own interface on the iPad, you know, like essentially our own local start menu that you could interact with on the iPad and have a low latency uh, touch experience and then translate it in using accessibility APIs so that we could drive the remote UI on the virtual desktop that's in the data center. And by doing that, you'd get the immediate verification from a um, that the user wants that, that their command has been understood. You don't need to wait for the round trip to go all the way to the data center have Windows send the response back. You get it locally on the iPad, so just like very quick and decisive. And then in the background, you're sending this stream of commands, that's the long arms with the white gloves, um, that essentially operate on the keyboard and tell the Windows machine what to do. Like, I want to run Windows Explorer, or I want to click the Start menu and display the options. So we sort of reskinned windows and put it locally on an ipad and then suddenly the the vdi experience was fantastic it was fast all the interactions of the user were local to the ipad and then we had these we were leveraging accessibility apis to get that done and they weren't even invented for that like microsoft had not designed them to facilitate tablet interface with windows but i realized it could be done and there was no reason that it wouldn't work. Um, and so we built a prototype and sure enough, it was fantastic. And we showed it off at our world conference um, in like, I don't know, it was like 2013 and it was in product six months later and people to this day love it um, as part of our product suite. So it came from a dream, came from recognizing there was customer pain. There was a mismatch between two technologies, you know, kind of an ergonomics mismatch. And then just like, being able to put that pain together with an idea that was somewhere else in my subconscious rolling around from another project. And um, it was kind of a very funny experience to, to live through, you know, realizing the sources of inspiration, including reading that book to my daughter night after night and just sort of marveling at the way the brain just sort of takes these different sources of input and, and like hashes it together into something interesting. 
When, and for me, one of the interesting parts of that story is that you had a, a colleague, in this case, I believe you said your manager, who sort of gave you permission to solve the problem. Like you sort of knew it was there, but it was really hard to admit the existing experience sucks. You know, and like once you cross that hurdle, then you are able to, to, to coalesce all these pieces and put it together. But I think sometimes we overlook the, the power and importance of those relational aspects in our career of having people who will just be really honest and say, hey, this is an issue um, and, and, and give us the freedom like within our own heads to solve the problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. We all have these mental sort of blocks. Um, and, you know, I'm used to asking hard questions. And so, so in a way, like it shows, we all have our limits. We all operate in these sort of um, mental cages to some extent. And being aware of what they are and, and leveraging relationships and other folks to inspire us, that is key to the innovation process. Um, it's, it's, um, it's really being willing to, to sort of go outside the boundaries there and, and come up with uh, new thoughts that that makes innovation happen. There was a couple of other things in there I thought were great. Um, you got you got more sleep than you normally got. I think we could all use a little more of that. Big time. <laughs> it's been pretty well proven in research that you need sleep in order to to, to think, right? And uh, the other thing that I thought was really cool is that you were in an environment that you typically aren't in. I'm sure that had something to do with it in the you know in the the compound the the mixture of the whole experience. Yeah, exactly. Well, we we had. We had less T&E budget that year, I, I recall. So we were we were trying to go on the cheap and that led to like this really old school TV. I remember trying to watch TV before bed and it was just so such a pathetic experience. I was like, that's it. I'm just going to sleep. So I was just laughing at the different influences that went into setting up or teeing up that insight. It's, you know, it's not it's not all college courses and um, and, and uh, computer science. It's like <laughs> it's a lot of random things. Um, yeah, cool. So, yeah, I think that's really funny, actually, that that's what drove you to um, to inventing something, uh, you know, just the just the visual imagery. And I think sometimes that's really important. We don't realize that sometimes the visual imagery that we have in our head of a problem is what's going to drive us. We tend to think of it as being very abstract and 3D models right. of things, which is true, by the way. Um, I know a lady who's a doctor and you, you, I ask her like, how do you do that thing with the IV? And she's like, you know, I know anatomy so well, I can actually see the interior of your body when I look at your skin and I just know where things are. So I know where veins are and I know where to put the IV in. And it's not like I think about like what's on the surface and what the color of things are. She said, I just know where things are and I can just go, well, there it is. Well, I think the same sort of a thing is happening there that you're actually seeing inside a problem in a sense structurally and seeing what's under the surface in a way that's that really makes a difference yeah it's learning to know what these clues mean too so um i knew when i woke up that my my brain had told me something so that was number one i I had a distinct feeling like i had been given a solution even though i didn't know at that moment what it was but as i thought about it i knew you know that those arms behind the tablet represented an abstraction layer because the the cat and hat was using native um, finger gestures yeah. on the iPad. So I knew that there was a concept of an abstraction layer that translated input using some kind of you know distance protocol and then interfaced with a PC on the other end. And as I thought about that, I was like, oh yeah, of course I know how to do that because of this other project. I've been working around these accessibility APIs. So I'm just fascinated that 
we our brains yeah. work on problems. Yeah, yeah. subconsciously, yeah. it's it's pretty interesting. It makes me wonder what other solutions are locked inside of people's heads out there. I bet you there's I bet you there's a hundred or a thousand of these for every one that actually makes it out the way that it made it out with you. And people and people don't give themselves permission, or they don't know how to sell it, or they don't know how to do the right thing. Well, that is awesome. I think we should wrap up there, Daniel. Um, maybe we should bring you back on to continue talking about innovation processes at some point or other cool innovation stories. So, um, yeah, I think that's really, really great. So, Tom, where can people get in touch with you if they want to? Your non-existent blog. We'll just continue over. <laughs> Might as well keep going. <laughs> no blog yet one day. Um, as soon as Yvonne writes a post, I will write a post. So. Um, I'm at LinkedIn, uh, uh, Tom Ammon, and Twitter at the same. Okay. Yvonne, how do people get in touch with you? Yep. Your non-existent blog. Well, it's there. It's just very, very, very out of date. But that is going <laughs> to be fixed in the new year. Um, <laughs> no, um, you can find me on Twitter at Sharp Network or on LinkedIn at Yvonne Sharp. And Daniel, where do people get in touch with you? If they want to follow your work or do you have a blog? Do you talk about this stuff? Um, or are you kind of non-social media? I, I'm... I'm uh... Casual social media. I'm on Twitter, Daniel Beveridge at Twitter, uh, you know, on Twitter. And I'm on LinkedIn, um, also on IEEE uh, Impact Creator profile there. And All right, cool. um, those are probably the best ways to, to ping me. And I, I do I do write articles here and there. My goal in 2021 to do more of that. So, All right, good. Well, if you think of other topics, please email me. We'll get you back on the hedge. It's a fascinating conversation around innovation and stuff like that. It's very good. All right, I'm Russ White. You can always find me at rule11.tech here on The Hedge. History of networking, blah dee da -de da People know how to find me, so I'll just let it go at that. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Hedge, and we'll catch you next time. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.